My name is Woody Rule. I'm a certified speech-language pathologist currently living in Cincinnati, Ohio. My wife, Amy, uh, which I think some of, some of you met yesterday, uh, she's a hospitalist uh, pediatrician at Cincinnati Children's. Uh, we have been there for a little while now. She did training there. I did my graduate training. Uh, we spent uh, a year at Tenwick Hospital in 2014. Uh, where I worked clinically as a speech-language pathologist and uh, assisted the physiotherapy department with starting a uh, community-based rehab program for children with disabilities. Um, currently in Cincinnati, I'm finishing my PhD, and our goal is when I finish here in 18 months to go back overseas, either to um, somewhere in East Africa where um, we've got um, academic faculty applications out in Ethiopia and Kenya and Tanzania right now. So we're seeing what falls through. So that is, we're, we're kind of open, but uh, clinically I work with uh, dysphagia, swallowing disorders. That is my specialty. Uh, currently working at the Cincinnati VA Hospital and some local Cincinnati hospitals, PRN, as I finish my PhD work. So. And I'm Courtney. Um, I trained in North Carolina at State, and I specialize in cleft, but do a lot of stuff. I'm currently at Bingo Hospital in Cameroon, another PACS hospital if you know about PACS. Um, been there for two years, practicing there. Absolutely love it. Um, and at Bingo, I have to see absolutely everything. So I'll see the stroke patients, I'll see the cleft kids, I'll have outpatient kids who stutter, um, all of our voice problems. We have a big ENT clinic. So jack of all trades, master of some kind of thing. Um, but really enjoy working with some of these patients on the ward. And I, because I work in a low resource setting, got a lot of options for that for any of you who are considering um, working overseas and have some low resource settings that you may be going into as well. <laughs> That's me. Great. Uh, two housekeeping things before we get started. I feel like I'm very loud. Am I yelling at you guys? Okay, it sounds good. Great. I hear myself. This is great. Um, so two housekeeping things. One, we want you to ask questions. Uh, Courtney and I are super laid back. We're not lecturers. We're, we're wanting to have a conversation with you guys. So if there are questions that you have at any time during our PowerPoint slideshow, let us know. We're here for you guys and to answer your questions. If something's not being addressed, we want you to reach out and help us help you. Okay? Uh, we have some things planned. But again, we're fine going off of that track if uh, you guys have different needs or have different questions. Number two, um, I think there was an email sent out this morning to everyone that was registered for the conference about evaluations. Uh, this is the first time this session uh, or, or any session on swallowing disorders, to my knowledge, has been presented here at the Medical Missions Conference. So it would be really great if you guys uh, could uh, put in an evaluation for us on the Google Doc. Uh, again, that should have been sent to your email that you registered with this morning. Uh, it's a link. You just select what breakout session you were in and give your feedback, positive or negative, but we would love to hear from you guys and if it's helpful or not helpful and how we can make it better. So that would be helpful for us moving forward. All right. Great. So we're going to start out just a little introduction. Again, this is extremely basic. For you physicians and physicians in training, this is probably going to insult your t in intelligence a little bit, and I don't mean that in any bad way, I promise. Um, but we're going to introduce dysphagia and swallowing disorders, okay? So swallowing disorders, also known as dysphagia, can occur at any point during the swallowing process, okay? We, as speech-language pathologists, we generally divide the swallowing process into three specific phases. We have an oral phase, which obviously involves the oral cavity, the mouth, um, and then we have a pharyngeal phase, and then we have an esophageal phase, 
Those are our three main categories for the swallowing process. Okay. Problems with the swallowing process at any point can occur from a physiological issue or an anatomical issue. Okay. Uh, and we'll talk about a few of those today, uh, brain-based disorders and anatomical problems. Uh, part of the description today was to talk about things like stroke and things like cleft lip and palate. So we're going to give you a little taste of both. Um, so, thank you, Courtney. So here's a little diagram to give you an idea of how the normal swallow is supposed to work. I see a few of you have drinks. Who has a drink with them right now? Great. Coffee, I have mine. I'm not sharing, though. Who else has it? Okay. So I want you to take a drink of whatever you have with you. I know not all of you can. And I want you to think about what you're doing, okay? It's probably a little weird to think about your swallow because it's so reflexive. We do it all day long. You swallow your spit all day long. Unless you spit it out. Okay. So you've taken a drink. What was the first thing that you did? Yeah. Okay. So you've did did you keep it in your mouth or did it go straight back? Okay, you loaded it in your mouth. So first step, bringing something to your mouth. Let's even simplify it that far. Bringing it to your mouth, taking it into your mouth. What happens with your tongue when you swallow? Again, this is a little strange, but I want you to think about it. What happens to your tongue when you swallow? Okay, yeah, so you feel the tip of your tongue actually go towards the alveolar ridge or the roof of your mouth, right? And then the liquid kind of falls backwards, right? And then what happens? All right, so you've got your tongue providing some, some movement to pull the liquid back. What happens to your throat then? You can sometimes feel it on the front of your throat. What's happening there? I think Megan was talking about you, you feel like squeezing, yeah. right? You feel like your throat squeezing, okay? There's all these pharyngeal muscles, your tongue muscle working together to take food or liquid from the front of your mouth down to your belly, okay? It's a very complex process, again, separated into these three phases, oral, pharyngeal, and esophageal. Uh, today, we're going to focus primarily on the oral pharyngeal issues. Um, if you guys have interest in the, in the esophageal issues, we can also discuss those if you'd like. Uh, but again, we're just focusing today on oral pharyngeal. So um, there we go. Let's. Uh, this may not come up because of the Internet today, but um, we can. This is what we call a modified barium swallow test. How many have seen a video fluoroscopy before? Okay, so a few of you. So this is a lateral view of the head. So the x-ray is uh, basically looking towards the side of your head. This gives us an idea of what's going on orally, pharyngeally, and uh, whenever we can turn the uh, fluoro machine, we can often get a picture of what's going on in the esophagus as well. But here you see um, it's a disordered swallow. This is not normal, but it gives you an idea of what's going on. The contrast there, the darker gray or black, uh, is what... Uh, Food or liquid is inside of the mouth being swallowed. Um, you can see different anatomical parts here. The trachea in the front of the throat, esophagus in the back. You can see the soft palate raising and uh, lowering. And then, of course, the tongue, which is one of our favorite pieces of anatomy. Yeah. So this is just to give you an idea of what's going on while you swallow. Uh, it's a pretty cool video if you haven't seen this before. So.
And so if you're looking at a patient who has just eaten or drank something, there are a few signs and symptoms that you can say, hey, I think you've aspirated something. And that's really our big fear, is we don't want anything to enter into the lungs possibly cause pneumonia. So what are some of your basic signs and symptoms? The most obvious one is coughing. If anything goes down, the vocal folds are going to feel it, and they're going to say, hey, something's not right, this shouldn't be here, and try to cough everything up. So the very first sign and symptom of aspiration and dysphagia is, hey, they're coughing a lot. So that's the first thing to look for. The next one is that wet, gurgly voice. Do you know what I'm talking about if I say that? So that I can't do it because I'm not going to aspirate, but that kind of sound, not good. Because if anything's just hanging out at the level of vocal folds, the vocal folds can't vibrate the same, and you're going to hear a difference in their vocal quality. Um, the next one, it just takes extra effort or extra time. I mean, normally you should initiate a swallow within one or two seconds. And so if someone is just holding that food in their mouth for a long time, they're not able to control it well or to initiate a swallow quickly, there's a good chance that they're aspirating or that something's going wrong with their swallow. So that's something else to look for. Um, also, if food is leaking from the mouth, so if they've got poor control here, I'm going to wonder if they have poor control elsewhere also. So that's also something to look for. Um, reoccurring pneumonia. So they may have aspiration pneumonia the first time, our great physicians can work with them, give them antibiotics, clear that pneumonia. But if they keep aspirating, well, they're going to get sick again and again and again. So you also want to check to make sure if someone's got pneumonia frequently that that is a sign and symptom of aspiration and then, therefore, dysphagia. You also want to check for weight loss and dehydration. So if they're not getting enough nutrients because they're not swallowing well, they're going to drop in weight. Um, if they can't swallow well and they're aspirating, they're going to get dehydrated, and that's not good for the body as well. So it's another thing just to look for if you're trying to see if a patient has dysphagia. Fantastic. So uh, where might you encounter uh, dysphagia or swallowing disorders? There's a wide variety of things that can cause swallowing disorders. Um, <clears throat> dysphagia is what we consider a symptom. It is not a diagnosis per se. It is a symptom of some other disease or uh, process going on in the body. Um, so dysphagia is a symptom rather than a diagnosis. I think that's something to consider. We're always looking, if someone presents with dysphagia, it's never in isolation. It's always going in line with something else. Okay, there's always some other reason it's a symptom. So, but where might you encounter them? So uh, the uh, diagnosis that you may see uh, that is causing uh, the symptom of dysphagia is things uh, with damage to the nervous system. Things like stroke, brain injury, spinal cord injury. We see neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and ALS, um, MS, muscular dystrophy, Alzheimer's, uh, cerebral palsy. We see all of these uh, uh, nervous system processes causing swallowing disorders sometimes. Not always, but sometimes you can see them associated. In addition to damage to the nervous system, you might also see anatomical problems such as mouth, throat, head and neck cancer of any kind, esophageal cancer, uh, any injury or surgery involving the head and neck. Again, we've got lots of different nerves in the head and neck. And any surgery that is exposing some of these nerves and leaves them vulnerable can cause, um, may cause, can potentially cause issues with swallowing as well. And then finally, in the oral cavity, decayed or missing teeth. If someone has trouble chewing, 
sometimes that may be uh, um, problematic with uh, getting food processed in the oral cavity effectively and uh, thus swallowing effectively. So uh, we've got three cases that we're going to try and – let me move back here. Uh, we've got three cases that we'd like to present to you guys. Um, again, if there are any questions that you have, interrupt us. Uh, we want you guys to get the tools that you want from this session uh, rather than what we have to give you, if that's better. Um, but we have three cases to present. Uh, any questions so far about our swallowing intro? All right, fantastic. Um, so let's go into uh, case number one. Our cases are presented to you guys from a mix of uh, cases in Cameroon and Kenya. Uh, like I said, I was at Timok Hospital in 2014, and uh, my case uh, is specifically from Timok Hospital. So what we had is a 15-year-old girl who presented to the emergency room uh, really acute swelling of the uh, head and neck and paraoral area. Uh, she was immediately trached. She was satting at, at a, uh, I said, uh, struggling to maintain oxygen above 80%. She was immediately trached in the emergency room and uh, sent to the pediatrics floor for diagnosis. Report came back to me. She had a diagnosis of what they call cutaneous anthrax infection. Okay. When I saw the word anthrax, I was like, oh my gosh, bioterrorism, anthrax? You know, that's my lack of medical knowledge. Uh, so I was... Uh, instructed that this is not the weaponized version of anthrax at all, but it is a bacteria that presents in um, uh, animal skins. Sometimes we actually see it in the southwest United States and Central America, uh, and in western Kenya, we saw it in the Maasai culture, who uh, is eating raw beef. So what ended up happening is this young girl had ingested this infected meat and she presented with mucosal involvement of this cutaneous anthrax infection. Okay. Uh, she was not able to swallow due to the uh, severe edema, and she was transferred to the ICU. So her swallowing problems that we saw, uh, actually, this is a before and after picture. So she was treated with antibiotics. Um, here, in, uh, if you're treating the wet weaponized version of anthrax, you would... Um, often treat, to my knowledge, with doxycycline. Here in Kenya, uh, we actually treat with penicillin. So uh, she was on IV penicillin for this. So this is before and after, about seven days, a week or so. As you can see, fairly, um, fairly significant swelling of the uh, head and neck. Uh, she was given an NG tube, and again, she was trached at this time. So uh, a week later, she still has her trach, but you can see the swelling has uh, gone down significantly. So let's talk about her swallowing concerns a little bit. She was not tolerating any oral feeds or liquids. What ended up happening is she was given something, and it was just falling out of her mouth. She wasn't able to keep anything inside of her mouth. So she had impaired mandibular, lingual, and neck range of motion. All right, she wasn't able to open her jaw and close her jaw fully. She wasn't able to turn her head from side to side. Again, it was all of the swelling process that was causing this to happen. Not only did she have edema on the outside that was visible, but she had pharyngeal edema on the inside that was causing airway obstruction. That's why she kept her trach for the week. Um, she also had mucosal involvement. Again, open sores inside of her mouth that made it very painful for any uh, food or drink to be inside of her mouth. So it was extremely painful for her during this time. This is a picture of a modified barium 
video fluoro uh, snapshot for you. This is not hers specifically, but she presented with the same issue. I, I was not able to find her actual study. Uh, but uh, she was presenting with what we call penetration into the laryngeal vestibule. So she had liquid that was going down the base of the tongue over the epiglottis and presenting at uh, the level of her vocal folds. It was not going into her lungs, thank goodness, but it was getting right close. So she was presenting with what we call penetration to the uh, true vocal folds. So what did they end up doing? They continued IV antibiotics with her. The edema continued to get better. And what did I do as a speech-language pathologist? She's not eating. She's got this huge NG tube. What do we do with her? So what I did is we worked on her problems. She had range of motion issues. So what did we do? We worked on her jaw movement. We worked on her neck movement, back, back and forth, doing some stretching exercises. Uh, we finally did uh, some work with her trach as well. The thing about the swallowing mechanism is that it's uh, comprised of this complex set of pressures. That's really what causes the, um, there's some anatomical movement of your tongue, but what really pulls the food and drink towards your belly is this uh, system of pressures. So where there's a closed uh, seal on one side, like your tongue going up to the roof of your mouth, it's then causing an opening at your upper esophageal sphincter. It's pulling things down, and then you've got peristalsis in the esophagus slowly pulling things towards your stomach. Okay, So it's this complex system of pressures. If you have a trach, it's now an open system. It's no longer closed. So you end up presenting with uh, food and drink penetrating into the larynx, okay, if you have a trach. It can be seen. So what we ended up doing is simply having her touch her finger over the end of the trach, as long as her sats were fine. She was uh, plugging the hole while she swallowed, and then she would breathe. She would touch, swallow, breathe. And then finally, we were working on airway closure techniques like grunting. That's something that is uh, sometimes helpful to get uh, closure to the airway to make sure that her um, she's as safe as possible if she has things penetrating into her larynx. So we were doing like grunting exercises, uh, 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 or even coughing, because <coughs> all of those motions are bringing uh, tightness back to the um, airway and helping to decrease risk of laryngeal aspiration. Oh, yes, learning point here. So even when a patient is impaired, they've got an NG tube, they're trached, okay? Even when all these things happen, the point here is that you can still work on some things even if they're not eating uh, a full oral liquid diet. So things that I did, I worked with her for a week on some of these range of motion exercises as we were getting ready to try her on some uh, uh, foods and liquids. So point here, you can work on some things even in the meantime, even if someone is uh, getting alternative feeds. Any questions right now? Awesome. So the next one was one of my patients at Bingo that we just had a few months ago. Baby Saber, three months old, with a bilateral cleft lip and palate. Do any of y'all work with clefts on a regular basis? A little bit? Okay. Um, clefts are sort of my favorite. That's what I specialized in, and so you're getting close to my heart here. But she is the cutest little girl that came in, but pretty severe malnutrition. You have a cleft palate. It's that pressure system as well. It's open. They can't suck. They have nasal regurgitation. So she was just struggling to maintain weight. The other difficulty that we had was that her mom, we think, had some cognitive impairments. So we spent a lot of time teaching the mother some feeding techniques, and mom was just struggling to follow the instructions. 
So we really had to spend time with the nurses, to spend time with the mom, almost every feeding, to make sure this baby could gain weight enough for her first surgery. And so that was our biggest concerns with her. Um, yeah. So there she is. Isn't she adorable? I wanted to take her home with me. She would laugh and smile. I mean, she had the hospital for a few months gaining weight. And so she was just the cutest little thing. Even after she got um, weight enough, we were waiting for surgery. Um, so our biggest swollen concerns with kids with cleft is one, that aspiration. They can't coordinate things well because the palate's open, all that needs regurgitation, the pressure differential's not there. So aspiration is one of our biggest concerns for kids with cleft. Nasal regurgitation is the next thing because all their milk just comes through that opening in the palate and it's really hard for them to manage that. And then there's this oral aversion. So they realize, hey, you put milk in my mouth, it comes through my nose and it hurts. You put milk in my mouth and I aspirate and I cough and I'm feeling very uncomfortable. So they have this oral aversion, this pattern that they've learned um, to associate milk with bad things. And then often they may be nervous about eating, they may not want to eat, even though they're hungry. So we really are trying to work on making sure that feeding becomes a pleasurable, happy experience for the baby to reinforce that you need to eat um, and reduce nutrition as well. It's a cleft lip only. They have a hard time getting a seal around the nipple, which is also difficult for a lot of these babies. So then what do we do? Um, The first thing is an upright positioning. Um, I'm a big fan of University of Alabama Roll Tide American football. I can't use that analogy in Cameroon because they know football. So having to teach them upright positioning, you know, Heisman kind of position. You want them up as high as possible because gravity is your friend. It will help reduce nasal regurgitation. And then make sure that milk doesn't spill back too quickly. So the second thing then um, are the special bottles. If you're in a developed context, you won't have access to any of these bottles. There's a picture of three that are up there for you. Um, and each have different advantages, disadvantages, and you just work through your club center to see which ones that work best for the baby and the mom. Um, in our context, you occasionally can get these bottles, but they're really expensive and not affordable for our families. I've also done cleft work in South Sudan, going to Liberia soon. These are definitely not options there. So what do you do in a low-resource setting with a child with cleft? Well, one thing that we've started doing is having the moms to breastfeed but self-express during the feeding. So the mom is actually holding her breast and squeezing milk into the baby at the same time that she's feeding. They can't create that suck because of the palate, or they can't create a tight seal because of the cleft lip, but mom can help out a little bit. If the baby's still struggling, then hopefully the mom can express into a medicine cup. I like medicine cups instead of some of the other bottles because they're easier to clean. If you're trying to give someone in developed context a full bottle to clean, sometimes they don't know how to clean it well. And then bacteria will grow in the bottle, get into the milk, cause diarrhea and other medical issues. And so unless I feel very confident the family knows how to keep the bottle clean and they have access to clean water, then I try just to use a medicine cup. If I do think they can clean the bottle, what we have done is taken a small blade and cut an X in the nipple or even just a small hole to increase the flow. Again, the babies can't suck, but as the flow increases, sometimes that's just what you need. The other thing we have to watch for is babies will always swallow in a pattern, suck, swallow, breathe, suck, swallow, breathe. Occasionally it will be suck, suck, swallow, breathe, suck, suck, swallow, breathe. But it's something that if you're just looking and watching the baby, you can sort of figure out. So at the time the baby is trying to suck, 
that's when you want to give the milk. Be by cup, by bottle, or whatever. And so usually the moms can just watch the baby and figure that out. You don't want to try to squeeze milk into their mouth if they're trying to breathe. An obvious risk for aspiration there. Um, and then after feeding, you want to make sure you burp the baby well. They have a um, high tendency to get extra air in their bellies when they're swallowing, and that just gives them some gas. And so if you burp them afterwards, it helps get rid of that, and it's a much better experience for them. Um, feeding babies with cleft is never easy, but I have I don't know how these rock star moms have been able to do it. Because at our hospital, we still are getting babies who are able to get their surgeries on time because they've gained weight enough. Usually they're a little bit underweight on the bell curve, um, but these rock star moms are able to figure it out. Never easy, but a lot of moms can manage. Great. Uh, since we're on the topic of babies, I wanted to address uh, premature babies as well. Uh, if uh, you've been to Tenwick or going to Tenwick, uh, you'll see that they have a full-blown ICU, a neonatal ICU. Uh, so for NICU babies and for preemies, uh, it's important to know that the developmental sk- feeding is a developmental skill. And it's something that we usually don't try to encourage until they are showing signs that they're ready to feed. Some of those signs might be the suckling pattern, which is a uh, tongue movement uh, going in and out of their mouth. They might see some lip smacking. They might be bringing their hands towards their mouth, uh, sucking on their uh, fists. Um, So looking for some of those developmental signs that a baby is ready. Gestationally, we look for about 34 weeks gestation. That's the general rule of thumb. Of course, it's all on a bell curve, and we're going to see babies that are ready before then and some babies that are ready much well after then as well. But 34 weeks is the general rule of thumb that we start these oral feeds. At uh, Timwick specifically, uh, we do use cup feeding across the board. I mean, we've got 42 babies sometimes either breastfeeding or using a cup uh, because they're easy to clean. They're easy to keep sterile uh, with, uh, by boiling them. So you'll see moms self-express into the cup and then feed even kids without cleft lip and palate with a medicine cup if they're young and preemie. Yes. What's the weight you're shooting for? At our hospital, we want them to be five kilos for the lip repair, and we usually try to schedule that around three months. We want them to be 10 kilos for the palate repair, which our hospital does between nine and 12 months, ideally. And then how long would a typical feed take if you're doing a medicine? My moms can get it down to about 15 minutes. If you go longer than that, you're running a risk of them using all their energy trying to feed and then no energy left to gain weight. And uh, with a cup, honestly, it ends up going faster than a nipple or breastfeeding would uh, because because there's a much greater higher flow going with the cup. Unless it's well controlled, you end up getting much more volume. The thing about cup feeding, uh, which is also important to note, is that uh, some studies are showing that um, babies are losing 45% of their cup volume that they're fed. Part of that is related to technique. I would say most of it's related to technique. It's falling out of the mouth. So making sure that the mom is um, using the edge of the cup to scoop what's falling out of the mouth uh, and, and then keep presenting that will ensure that the baby's not losing as much volume. No way. Yeah. We're going to comment on older kids. Sometimes you run across from the villages five, mm-hmm. six years mm-hmm. old. They grow, but need cosmetic repair. Um, I'm a big fan of getting the lip repairs. The palate repair we would have to talk about because um, it's sort of this catch-22 of if they don't get a palate repair, they're never going to have normal speech. Um, but their speech outcomes after that age are not the greatest. 
I've, if they've lived to be that old, swallowing is no longer an issue. They've figured something out of how to swallow effectively. They still may have some nasal regurgitation, so fixing the palate can help stop that. Um, but their speech is going to be problematic. Just developmentally, neurologically, they're mm-hmm. beyond that window? Or? Because they've had such bad habits that they developed to compensate for the cleft mm-hmm. and to retrain them is a lot of work for me. Okay. I've done it. It's not easy. That answer your question? Yeah. So most of the most of the kiddos that I've seen here have already been repaired. Do you find if you're using like these higher flow systems that you have more of that aspiration or more of that nasal like penetration or what what's the trade off there? Like you mean the bottles? Yeah, so if you're cutting a larger hole and it's higher flow, like you're you're giving them a whole bunch more to try and work with faster. And so like do you see more of that aspiration and more of the like the milk coming up their nose, or it's hard to figure that out. Don't hear a question. Um, it's hard to tell where I am because I have no way to do a modified barium swallow. I have no way to look inside the baby. Um, what I can just tell is that somehow the babies are growing enough to get surgeries on time. I would say at least 80% of our cases at Bingo Hospital in Cameroon are getting their surgeries on time, which is a miracle in a developing context. That's, that's absurd. So somehow they're able to grow enough. And I don't see many patients in our ward for clefts with aspiration pneumonia. So I don't know if they're in the village and they're not coming in. Um, I don't have a good way to judge that. But at least in patients, I'm not for, sure. For babies that are here in the U.S., um, we don't typically modify bottles. That's not what you see. We have, um, usually there are different products available. If you go into Babies R Us, you look at the grand uh, display of bottles and nipple. I have a 12-week-old, so I'm going through this process on the way home today because uh, my wife is going back to work on Monday. Lord help us. Um, <laughs> so uh, we don't normally modify bottles, but you get a different flow rate. So there's usually slow, medium, fast available on the market here in the United States. This is simply to do that, to modify the flow when we don't have other products available. Um, so often you don't see here, here in the U.S. cutting an X or making a bigger hole. You just change the flow rate of the nipple that's presented. Um, sometimes I have seen, at least in my newborn, who is fairly typically developing, when I give him a bottle, it's really hard for him. And he has nasal regurgitation. He coughs and chokes and doesn't like it. So you, there's a difference between breastfeeding and bottle feeding. Bottle feeding is always is usually a faster flow than a um, Sorry, is a slower flow and more controlled flow. Breastfeeding is slower and more controlled than a bottle. Bottle is going to go faster. Um, so sometimes you see that when kids are transitioning. Just a few other tidbits. Yeah, so, uh, dep- so gagging as far as on liquids like milk or with solids. So babies generally, so solids. Okay, so um, are you are you thinking about a specific age? I'm sorry, I'm throwing all these questions back to you. Um, it could be a range of things. That, that's why I'm trying to pinpoint exactly what what type of child you're you're thinking about. So are you thinking about uh, like older children, or are you thinking about infants and babies? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So if they are eating solids, uh, there can be a range of things. Gagging-wise, um, I, 
I can't tell you exactly because I think that they would go through some evaluation process. But um, we see some kids uh, gagging just if they get overwhelmed with something. If uh, foods are new, if things are kind of a different strange texture, sometimes you see gagging. Um, and oftentimes kids are sensitive to taste as well. Um, I know when I was young and up to three, four, five years old. Uh, my brother loved strawberries. I couldn't, I, I couldn't even tolerate them. I would gag and throw up. I love strawberries now. I was just super sensitive to that particular taste and texture when I was younger. So I think that there are some differences with kids as far as taste and texture that uh, makes them a little more sensitive. Uh, the sensory system is also developing during that time. Uh, it's really growing. Tastes are changing. Texture adaptation is changing in the mouth. So those are the sensory texture things that I would think about. Um, and then if something is just overwhelming, a large piece of food uh, or things that aren't uh, chewed up properly can sometimes be hard to get down, especially in kids, because they have smaller smaller uh, space to work with. So... Um, So, so there are some uh, programs overseas that are working with kids that are undernourished or malnourished as far as that is concerned. As far as the biomechanics of feeding, it really depends on where you are. Here in the United States, we often have uh, interdisciplinary clinics that involves a feeding specialist, a speech-language pathologist, and a registered dietitian and physician and whatnot. Um, Overseas, you'll see a mix of things. Often nurses are very skilled in doing some of these feeding techniques just from what they've learned in their culture. Um, it's very culture-specific as well. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with any speech pathology clinics necessarily that are in low-resource environments because it's a very new concept and a very new field to that. Um, but again, it depends on where you are. There are some... Uh, um, uh, Middle-income countries that do have uh, feeding specialties, and they are doing that. But the lower resource you go, um, the less you're going to find this particular specialty. What are you saying? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not catching. I'm actually not familiar with that. What do you? Mm-hmm. I see. I see. I see. I sure, 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 sure. I see. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, it, any of that oral sensation? Mm -hmm. Sure. Losing weight. I'm assuming was not gaining weight was kind of. Okay. Sure. Sure. Right. Things would stay down. Yeah. And wrap it. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, so that's a fairly complex case for sure. Um, so, um, but as far as working overseas, is that sort of where, where you're going? Like, if that could be supported? Yeah, so. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I am not familiar with any particular place per se, but I'm, uh, there, there are definitely spaces for you as a parent with, uh, with experience there to just share your story. Um, any of, any health clinic is probably going to see some child who has feeding difficulty. So I could see you being very helpful to parents um, in sharing your story. So. Any other questions related to CLEPT before we move on? Our next case, um, Joy, a 70-year-old female. She came in with, um, after fall, um, she had paralysis on the right side of her body. Her face had some weakness. She was unconscious for a good 30 minutes and then slowly started waking up again. Um, she had a history of hypertension. Um, they suspected a hemorrhagic stroke. At our hospital, we don't have a CT scanner. It's an hour away in Bamenda, and no one wants to go on a pot pulled field road. Um, to the CT scanner there too frequently. So they were guessing it was a hemorrhagic stroke. Um, we did see her in our clinic. Yeah. So our basic swelling concerns with her post-stroke was, one, decreased awareness. It took her a long time to sort of wake up and be aware of what was going on, to see and understand the people around her and what we were trying to do. So that was our first concern, was that she just wasn't awake and aware of her surroundings. She had decreased strength and stability. Um, when she finally did get more awake and alert, she couldn't sit alone by herself. She needed help just to sit up. Um, she could barely bring a spoon or a cup to her mouth. A lot of arm weakness. And so she was just really weak and needed a lot of support. Um, that weakness on one side always made her trying to fall, which is also tricky to deal with. Um, she had decreased sensation. The first few times we tried to get her to swallow, she couldn't even taste it or feel it. It was there. She wasn't aware that anything was on her mouth or anyone was touching her face. And so that decreased sensation made us concerned because if you don't know that something's in your mouth, you can't swallow it safely. You can't feel it. Um, and then she just had reduced coordination. And so her tongue wasn't moving consistently. She deviated to one side. She would completely neglect the other side. Um, you could just tell that things were not coordinated well. And a swallow happens fast. And so if you don't have good coordination and quick movement, then you're not going to be able to quickly protect your airway to keep from aspiration. So those are our immediate concerns for her. So what did I do? The first thing is make sure she was awake and alert. So sometimes that required a very hard sternal rub. Or if I had cold fingers or something, trying to talk to her, whatever we could, to make sure that she was awake, she was alert. The first few days immediately after her stroke, we didn't give her food. She wasn't aware of what was going on. But as her cognition slowly increased, then we were able to try a few things. So I wanted to make sure that she was aware of what was going on, fully awake, and at least trying to be participatory. Um, positioning. Sit upright. I have to tell our nurses at our hospital this almost every time I see a patient. Um, if you're lying down, you're not going to be able to coordinate a swallow well. Gravity will pull it back too quickly. And so gravity is our friend, which is why we want you to sit upright. 90 degrees if possible or as high as you possibly can. So for her, that was our biggest thing, is to make sure she was sitting all the way upright. Because of that weakness, I wanted her to lean to her strong side. Again, gravity is our friend. And so if she's leaning to this side and this is the strong side, then everything is going to be diverted to the muscles that can handle it more safely. And so because she was unstable, what we ended up doing was raising her head of bed and putting her sideways, leaning against the bed with a pillow. 
This is something low resource options would work when she went back home. Because if she just had a chair in her parlor, in her house, then she would just sit in a chair against a wall and be able to have that support, which was a very easy low resource option for her family. Um, the other thing is that she was able, she had a hard time cognitively understanding this, but China took the head also to the strong side because, again, gravity was a big help with that. Um, diet modification was the next thing that we did. She could not coordinate chewing. And after she tried to swallow, you could open the mouth and you would see that she still had all this remnant food pocketed in her cheeks that she couldn't clear out. So we just said, mix the solid foods. Let's do something soft that she can handle. So we talked with the family for a long time about what foods were readily available that would be a better choice for her. So in Cameroon, her options were avocados, um, boiled potatoes that we mashed with a fork, um, those were some of the easiest ones that they could do. They have something like ugali, if any of y'all have been to Kenya. They have something like that that we also use with some green vegetables. And those were easier for her to manipulate in her mouth to be able to eat. Um, for liquids, things went down really fast and she choked a little bit, so we just said water only for her. She's going to aspirate anything. I don't mind you aspirating a little bit of water. Please don't aspirate coffee and tea and sodas and beer. Not good for your lungs. So for her, we said water only. Um, and then any kind of pureed foods that we could find. The biggest thing also for her was to maintain her hydration and oral hygiene. So if we think about aspiration, that's really our biggest fear with dysphagia. And so if you have anything that enters the lungs, the lungs are going to try to clear it out. And the easiest way is for the lungs to capture whatever it is and then move it up for you to cough it out. But you need to have a lot of moisture in your lungs to move all that stuff out. So if you're dehydrated, you're a higher risk for aspiration. So that's why I was really pushing water, so I wanted to make sure that she stayed hydrated, especially after her IV fluid stopped. The second thing, oral hygiene. If you have a dirty mouth and you aspirate, anything in your mouth is going to go with your food or your liquid straight into the lungs. And so we really had to push with her family to brush her teeth, brush her teeth, brush her teeth, brush her teeth, brush her tongue, make sure the entire mouth was clean to make sure that she was a less risk for bacteria going down. All right. Great. So, oh, I'm really yelling there. So uh, we wanted to provide you guys some tools to take with you. We're going to go through these. Uh, we've only got about 10 minutes left or so, and then we're going to leave some room at the end for questions. But we wanted to give you some low-resource tools to take with you. So um, you've heard us talk about some management strategies, so I won't rehash all of them. But uh, for those of you that are taking notes, we want to provide you with some of these. Uh, airway protection is something that you can do without any uh, uh, expensive technology. Airway protection exercises, you can do uh, something like a cough after a swallow. When you cough, what's ending up happening is you are pressing any bit of material that's on or, or right below your vocal folds out into the pharynx. So when you swallow, you might be penetrating or aspirating slightly, coughing immediately after the swallow and then swallowing again will help to clear any of that material. So coughing after swallow, very low resource, something you can suggest. Squeezing hard while you're swallowing is also something you can do. Sometimes I describe, um, uh, when I was in Kenya, I was describing like you're swallowing an orange. Like you're swallowing an orange. Like you're really trying to squeeze. Here in the U.S., I talk about swallowing a golf ball. So just really squeeze hard. And what that sensation is doing is it's causing the brain to react to, I need to pull those pharyngeal muscles together and to really squeeze. And we see that uh, that helps to protect the airway. 
Second, modifying foods, as sometimes you might see. Um, making some foods thicker if things are going too quickly. Uh, it doesn't taste as good, but sometimes I would have my uh, patients boil a uh, soup or stew with flour or cornstarch to help to thicken it, just like you would here if you're making a chowder or something like that. Make it a little bit thicker. Um, and then using softer foods, as Courtney was talking about, uh, mashed avocado or boiled potatoes, uh, boiled meats that are a little bit more tender and easy to chew. Limiting those tough meats can really help your patients that are having a hard time chewing. And then uh, posture adjustment, as she discussed before, seated upright as much as possible. We would really like 90 degrees, as as close as you can get. Uh, Posture adjustment, we talked about moving, uh, uh, leaning to the strong side. If someone has unilateral uh, weakness on one side, leaning to that strong side. Sometimes you've probably seen uh, patients use a head turn or the speech pathologist that you've discussed with has talked about a head turn. The difference here, if you're taking notes, when you're leaning, you lean to the strong side. When you're turning your head, you're turning towards the bad side. Okay? The physiology there is that when you turn towards the bad side, you're closing off the bad side and diverting things down the strong uh, side of the pharynx. Okay? When you're leaning, you're using the strong side to accommodate for the weakness on the other side. Okay? So that's the that's the trade there. Uh, and then uh, patients who can't get food to the back of their mouth, we like, don't like to, but sometimes we will lean them back slightly. Um, and then sometimes we will even have patients uh, do a chin tuck as well, uh, which sometimes helps them, if things are going too quickly, to slow the flow. Uh, so doing that chin tuck. Uh, And then we want to talk to you guys about swallow screening as well. This is something that's very simple, three-step process you can take with you. You can do it on each other at lunch today. I really don't care. It's super easy, and we wanted to share it with you guys. If you're going overseas and are going to be working in a medical setting, you can do this day in and day out. Uh, At Tinwick, uh, I worked with the nursing students and the residents and MOs to train them on this process. Um, And to my knowledge, it's still being done on the wards today. So this is something that we do across the board if you're in nursing or whatnot, you've probably done something similar to this. But let's talk about it. So the Yale Swallow Protocol. This is something, of course, produced by Yale University. Um, Three-step simple process. One, you're going to screen swallowing with three ounces of water. Two, we're going to do a cognitive screening. It sounds scary, but it's not, I promise. And then three, we're going to do a very simple oral mechanism exam. So let's talk about each one. For your three-ounce water screen, you're going to have the patient sit upright. Again, like we've been saying, upright 90 degrees as much as possible. You're going to give them 90 mLs of water, three ounces or so. Okay? You have them drink it, just as they normally would if they were thirsty. You give them the cup and see what happens. Then we're assessing, we're listening for some of those overt signs and symptoms of aspiration, which we talked about before at the beginning. What were some of those? Let's remember them. Coughing. What else? Gurgle, wet gurgly voice, yes. If someone's hooked up to a pulse ox, you might see a uh, greater than 3% drop in their oxygen saturation, theoretically indicating that the airway is compromised in some way. Uh, Sometimes someone can silently aspirate, and there's none of these coughing or gurgly signs. Someone is still aspirating, and sometimes you can see that with a pulse oximeter. So you're assessing for some of these signs and symptoms. Someone passes, they're they're able to drink this entire amount. They fail, they're not able to drink the entire amount. This is something you can do once a day, twice a day, every day on rounds, whatever you want to do to assess where the person is with their swallowability. 
This just gives you an idea of where they are, how they're progressing, if things are getting better, if they're not. So that's the first step. We also want to do a cognitive screening as well. Three simple questions. What's your name? What year is it? Where are you right now? Or you can trade in some sort of culturally appropriate question for your particular location. The trick here is that when we're assessing cognition, we need to avoid the yes and no questions. Those are super easy. We need to get some information from our patients. So avoiding yes and no questions, providing some open-ended questions, something that you know can be predicted as correct or incorrect, but avoid the yes and no questions. All right. And then finally, looking at an oral MEC exam. Again, we're not doing a full evaluation here, but we're looking at three particular things. One, labial closure, ability to close the lips and keep things in the mouth. Two, lingual range of motion. So can they stick their tongue out, go up and down, side to side, and around in a circle? That's really what you're looking for with the tongue. And three, assessing for facial symmetry. Is there droop on one side versus the other? Okay. This can be incorporated into your regular neuro exam on rounds. Uh, if you are seeing a patient, you can do this, uh, this entire screening within two minutes. It will not add a lot of time to your uh, rounds, but it will give you uh, some good information on how your patient is tracking and progressing with their swallowing function. Okay. Um, yeah. Also, make sure your patient is conscious before you give them food or drink. You'd be surprised. Easy. I had one yeah. doctor consult me four days in a row. Come, how my patients swallow? <laughs> I said they're not awake. What do you want me to do? So. All right, so we've got about seven to eight minutes or so. We want to give you guys a chance to ask questions. If we don't get around to you, stay after. We're here to uh, answer questions for you guys. So start here. Yeah. Each time. Mm-hmm. Yep, to, to figure out, uh, one, where they are with the ability to tolerate a normal liquid diet at that point. Again, we're not assessing solids at this point. Um, so for this particular swallow protocol, you're looking at liquids only. This is giving you an idea of, is this person safe to swallow, or are they not right now? Really, I tend to use it on the field as a progress tracking to see where they are. If I see a person who is uh, just coughing, coughing, coughing on everything, what I will end up doing is doing the same swallow screening with them to track their progress while I'm trying other management techniques with them. Um, often if someone is gagging and choking and gurgly and coughing uh, on everything, I would probably limit their oral intake slightly given on what the policies are at your particular um, site, um, and then work on some of these things, see how they progress over time, especially if they have some sort of neurological issue, a stroke. We see that spontaneous recovery period in the beginning, oftentimes giving people a crutch. In the meantime, some alternative feeds are sometimes a good option while their brains are recovering. However, um, for a neural injury, uh, the best way to get swallowing to improve is to practice swallowing and to um, reconnect those neural pathways. So um, does that answer your question slightly? Yeah, I guess it's something like, you know, what if you make two out of three of those breaks? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. Yeah, so totally. It's, it's, we really, so we speech pathologists like to talk about clinical judgment. And for physicians, we trust you guys. We don't hold all the answers to the, to the dysphagia uh, uh, world at all. Um, we trust your clinical judgment as a physician. Um, if the person looks like they're tolerating foods and liquids and that looks fine, 
you're, and you don't have the ability to do some sort of instrumental evaluation with video fluoro or whatnot, I would say go for it as long as you're monitoring their medical signs. Oftentimes, if someone is compromised, you'll see them with uh, uh, um, gradually increasing medical problems. Sometimes you'll see increasing chest congestion. If they're aspirating, you'll see um, oxygen desaturation sometimes on your exam. Um, so listening for the lungs, especially the right lower lobe, making sure you're watching those medical signs as well, just to track. It's a very, very good question. Um, so at Tenwick specifically, they would send patients home with PEG tubes. They did PEG tubes all day long. Um, so we saw that quite often. However, uh, one of the problems sometimes is getting people tracked and keeping people on follow-up, coming back for appointments. If you're at a hospital or medical clinic, especially in a rural area, it's very difficult to do. Um, one of the biggest things that we try to do is to educate families on the problems that are going on and the problems that might happen um, and just signs to watch for. Oftentimes, if someone ends up uh, with progressive signs and we tell them, hey, you can watch for these things, if you watch for this, you really need to harambe and come back to the clinic so we can treat you and make sure that you're getting better. Um, so educating on some of these signs to watch for of things that are getting worse or things that are not improving um, to come back to the clinic if at all possible. Uh, some of these little resource management techniques as well, those airway closure techniques can be used across the board. Okay, um, So educating families on some of these little resource techniques to do in the meantime while they're recovering. Um, avoiding the the hard stuff is really what we would recommend until things are coming back, avoiding those tough meats, avoiding um, things that they might normally be uh, be eating. Sometimes we actually encourage them to do, in, in Kenya, we would do a mix of the broth and ugali together, and um, sometimes they, they would even... Um, uh, they would uh, crush their foods as much as possible, their vegetables. They, they would try and mix it all together and puree it. Sometimes that's easier. So just trying to find the ways that are easier to eat. But, again, I think the biggest thing is watching for those um, increasing signs that there's something going on and then telling families, if you can, Harambe, come back. So. We'll do um, G2s also at Bingo. And mm -hmm. some of them will stay for a full month until we can start oral feeds. Mm -hmm. And then we've had a lot of very old grandparent kind of folks come in yep. with strokes that are just so severe, and we do end up sending them home on palliative care. Yes. I think kind of a palliative follow-up. Yep. I mean, explaining to people that the peg is to provide them that nutrition and hydration mm -hmm. in the potential recovery period, but a lot of people think, even clinicians, that oh, they've got a peg, they're not going to aspirate. That's not true. Yeah. Prevent aspiration at all. It just bridges them mm -hmm. nutritionally to the hopeful recovery. You can still aspirate your saliva. Yeah. You can aspirate your saliva, and also, if someone has a peg, it doesn't stop their reflux as well. That can come up. Um, so, uh, here on the front row, first. Mm -hmm. What about some of the other processes that may be more global or diffuse? I mean, shin tuck seems like it would 
foot or going to go home, then maybe like leaning to one side wouldn't necessarily help because they're weak on both sides. Mm-hmm. We'll just sort of experiment um, and yeah. say, well, let's try this technique. If it helps, great. Okay, that one's not working. Let's try this one. Um, so it's sort of just a trial and error to see what's going to work best for the patient in their home environment. Yep. Um, there are some interesting resources. If you go um, and look at the American Speech Language Hearing Association website, ASHA, A-S-H-A dot org, they have a little search window, and you can type in dysphagia or swallowing disorders, and there are hundreds of articles about these techniques that we use. There are 15 or so that we would go to um, that we can work on. Um, there is a chart on there, if you look for it. I, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it shows if your patient has this issue, this is what you can do with them, and this is the theory behind it. So it gives you a chart that helps you figure out, these are the symptoms presenting, these are the things that are helpful, this is why we're doing it. Um, honestly, if you write your email down, I'd be happy to look for that. It's, it's on my computer somewhere, and I can email it to you if that would be helpful. Um, but asha.org. Uh, is a great resource. Um, so for some of these multi-site lesions, you end up with brainstem strokes even, you know, where you've got sort of a lower lesion affecting more. Um, you end up dealing with a variety of things. Often you're, uh, you're, you're, um, you've got involved consciousness, uh, trying to keep people awake and alert and whatnot. That's often our first um, thing that we're working with. But you'll just see a combination of strategies being used over time. If someone's having lateral issues plus some sort of coordination problem, you'll see management strategies that integrate both of those. A chin, oftentimes you will see a chin tuck and a lean or a chin tuck and a turn. You'll see a combination of strategies being used to account for each of the deficits. That's a really interesting question. So with uh, flaccid, what you end up with is um, that things are flowing too fast. There's not a proper seal in the oral cavity. Things are just flowing. There's not a lot of uh, ability to make um, make things uh, squeeze uh, properly. Um, so we end up doing thickened foods like that and doing a chin tuck as well to slow the flow of uh, food or liquid. And in spastic, of course, it's hard to get things down, so sometimes thinner things work better. But with spastic, you also run the risk of if things are really tight, things might actually go into the airway because things are being pressed so tightly, and there's not a lot of room in the back of the throat for, uh, for, for food and drink. So you'll see those things as well, differences. Yep. It's, hang on, it's 1020. Um, yeah. So the time is officially over. So I do want to just stop here because I want to respect your time. Yes. Um, but we will happily hang out for a few more minutes if you have some more questions. Thank you for coming. Um, I hope you're able to be a little helpful. Let's see. There's our email addresses if you want to get in touch with us. I've got some uh, some business cards if you're interested as well. Uh, we're happy to follow up with you guys if you have further uh, swallowing questions. So we're here. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Oh, and remember your evaluations, if you don't mind, uh, on your emails. That would be really great and helpful.